Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the second ever episode of the Burn It Down Already podcast. Um, my name is Rachel Rothenberg, <laughs> and I'm here as always with my lovely co-host, Blake Kelly. Uh, how are you, Blake? What's going on? Uh, doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. I um, For those that can't see my face when you uh, when you did the second ever thing, I did this like weird little, I think like, I think almost like a Nixon impersonation, <laughs> like with the, like with the two. Um... I'm a big fan of doing this. Yeah. Uh, what, what is this called? For people listening, we're doing the victory sign. The Yeah. Like, like sign. but with both hands. <laughs> both hands and victory. I think that it's, it's very much like, I, I, I think of Nixon when I think of that. I think, I don't know. I don't think he's the one that like did it, but. Um, no. It, I know what you're talking about, though. I always think of uh, the like Gen Z memes about like leaving the Zoom call and you don't really know what to do, so you're just like, <laughs> <laughs> that's really that's really funny. <laughs> um, yeah, but what's up? What has been going on with you this week? What are what are you thinking about? Um, I mean, I think uh, a lot of it, what I've been thinking about is, um, well, I just bought Trisha Hersey's uh, Rest is Resistance book. And I know I mentioned that in the last podcast episode from a podcast uh, she was on. But um, I think that like interludes really well to potentially our follow up episode today, which is kind of structured as like, you know, what does it mean to imagine a world outside of capitalism? Or what does that really look like? Because it seems really ambiguous because it's hard for us to parse out like what is and isn't capitalism. Yeah, that's something that we talked about before, right? This idea of like, you and I sat down to try to think about, okay, how are we going to talk about capitalism? Or like, how are we going to define it? Or how are we going to think about it? And we kind of we're like struggling, didn't we? Even though, like, I think we're both people who have like a good sense of, like we could explain the economics to you, right? Yeah, it's it's sort of the analogy I think I used uh, with you, or I, I mentioned with you too, is like, you know, when you are, when a fish is swimming in water and you are asking like, how, like how's the water? They, it's like, you don't, like you're in it, like you don't like. What do you mean? Like they don't know that it, they're in water. It's it's yeah. one of those. I don't know if I. Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it does. I think it's something that um, because capitalism is like I always think of it as like this octopus, right? That's got all these different tentacles, and the tentacles have this long reach. And maybe one of them is like market systems, right? Which like maybe people are familiar with thinking about like okay free markets private property um like private ownership of the means of production all of this stuff but it also really touches sort of every aspect of how we live our lives because so much of how people live now is organized around um how to be a good worker right, right. that that's the supreme like that's and the that's yeah go ahead yeah, it gets kind of meta too because it it's almost like it's this um underneath the surface sort of thing. Like you know like when you're in school or when you're being raised and everything, it's like our orientation to growing up and being adult is around how to be a good worker. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, even in our educational system, right? It's about making you functional enough to to go and work at your job. You know, it's not so much. And also, right, like going along with that, how to go and work at your job and not ask questions, right? right. Like not really think about, okay, why am I feeling so miserable? Why am I so tired? Why am I not having fulfilling relationships, right? Um, I think what you're taught, and it's some, certainly something that I've internalized, is that those feelings of misery and and unhappiness or alienation are not um, due to something structural, but because somehow you failed as a person, right? And if you can optimize yourself, mm. then not only are you going to be a better worker, but you're also going to be somebody who like has magically beat being beaten down, right? Like mm -hmm. you have been able to figure this out, but ultimately it's a, it's a goal that's not achievable. I, and I think the struggle that I face consistently too, is like knowing that we operate in this capitalist framework, how do we as individuals <laughs> like even attempt like this idea of, you know, not, uh abiding or not uh not really like giving our power to the system that we inherently are forced to live in and what can we what can be done like because of that and you know i think a lot of it really comes down to like you know like okay well like i was reading the first chapter of rest is resistance and like the first chapter was like a lot of the pushback that she receives is like okay well i have to pay bills right like i mm. like i have to still operate in this world and like what does that really mean and you know even to me it's kind of like like how it's the struggle of like okay i know that i don't want to abide by this system that inherently creates a paradigm where our value systems as a society and how we are revered is based on productivity and effort and that effort like means self-esteem and self-worth and how do we build something outside of that mm -hmm. like while we're still inside of it at the same time yeah i i, I feel like i don't you know i don't think there's there's a, a right answer on how to no. do this other than you know, and this is something I think we've talked about, this idea of um, of thinking about what is it that I can achievably do, right? And what is it that, um, what is it that I can sort of make myself responsible for? And what can I, um, you know, what can I recognize as part of a structure that is far beyond me, right? It's far beyond me as an individual. And, you know, because I think that it's very easy for people to start to feel, people who are becoming involved in this work, it's very easy for, for, for us to start to feel guilty, right? Where it's like, we're not doing enough, or we, we're not self-actualized enough, right? Or um, we haven't processed enough. And, you know, I think that I think it's always good to think to think about where you fit in in these in these sorts of paradigms, but also right, recognizing that like capital has a vested interest in offloading feelings of guilt and shame and um, and like responsibility onto individuals who ultimately right 
have power, but in terms of institutional power, it's not there. So like, I don't know what to do with that necessarily. And like, mm -hmm. I don't know where, like, I don't know where sort of empowerment comes from other than from like finding people who are in, in the same kind of having the same kind of feelings as you and being like, mm -hmm. okay, how, how can we, build this kind of mutual world together this that movement. presents some and this, yeah, yeah. In, this, in this community. And I, you know, I think that's also part of the reason why I feel this podcast is relevant to starting it, because I, I do think that there are a lot of people out there doing this work, even if it's not named in the same way. Yeah. And I think that um, it's an opportunity for people to feel connected in that work when I don't think there's enough media or messaging about this that is not um, you know, I just don't think there's enough out there around it. Um, and, and we're not necessarily being talking about it in the same context because, you know, it's very easy, you know, like I follow anti-capitalist on, on Instagram and, you know, they have all of these great memes or these great things that talk about like, you know, military budget spending and the military industrial complex and all of these like super highbrow things that, that do implicate and do talk about the reasons why we can't, you know, why we don't have the sort of, I don't know, like a different structure. But at the same time, it's like, what does that really mean for everyone's, you know, everyday lives? And I think that's something that I'm running up against a lot is like having to let go of this idea that I'm going to be, um, that, that like, I'm gonna be like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of the right way to say this. Like, because I've internalized and taught to be a good worker and mm -hmm. to be a productive and hard worker, like, what does it mean for me to now not be respected for that anymore? Yeah, yeah. I think that's something that, that that's something that very much resonates, I think, with with me and it's definitely something that um you know i have a lot of internalized stuff about work and it, it's it's hard because right like even even as you sit and you talk about right breaking down these structures and and what like work as personhood does it's still very easy i think to even bring that into um, you can even bring that into your like organizing work. Like oh, you can 100%. you can bring that thing of like I need to be productive, I need to be a hard worker into like anti-capitalist or anti-work organizing. Um, and I see it all the time, you know, in in leftist spaces or anti-capitalist spaces where people are um, are really sort of pushing themselves to exhaustion, trying to get things done, and. I think, you know, it's and some of it is this idea that, I mean, I think if you're really fired up about something and when you're feeling that, it's easy to ignore the symptoms of your body and what your mind is telling you about slowing down. But I do think that, like, I always think about, like, <laughs> things that my, like, you know, my high school gym teacher would say. He'd be like, girls, it's a, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint, right? This is a long historical <laughs> movement. Uh, so, I've, like, uh, I've, take I've a nap, you know? That. I've always... <laughs> That. I whenever someone is like it's a marathon it's not a sprint but I'm like but when does it end 
Yeah. And and I think the thing that, you know, really resonates for me based on what you just said is like, it's a marathon, not a sprint is just like, why am I always climbing this stupid mountain? Like, mm. I, I just, I'm like, can I get off? Like, and I think when people say that, you, they think, they think you mean like suicidality. And it's like, no, like, I, I want to change the structure of like, why we're like climbing this mountain that we do not need to be climbing. Right. But like, you're forcing me to, but telling me that's like kind of life. And I think that's <laughs> kind of the analogy of the sort of like fish in the water analogy mm -hmm. of like, you don't know that you're in it. And then you're yeah. like, well, it's the water. And you're like, can I go to the other water? Like there has to be other water. Right. Yeah. And I think that other, you know, the other side of the pool or whatever, you know, the other ocean, it's so close, it's so closed off and it's so inaccessible. I think to the, to the average person who, you know, wants to feed their family and, 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 be have a little money left fun money left over you know it's just not it's not something that is i mean to me like even as you're saying this and even with you know what the reading i've done the things that i you know the things that i know about the world i'm sitting here and i'm like it feels so far away you know oh. and i know that it's not you know i know that with the right I mean, again, like, again, it's like, if we just worked hard enough, we could get there, you know? Like, <laughs> right, right, right. Like, it is, it's, I think, I think the way that we're conditioned is so much just to see that other, that other side of the pool is now how I'm thinking about it. Like, it's just, it's not there. There's no way to move beyond that. And yeah. Because I think that, we have not been allowed to imagine what that really looks like feasibly. Right. Yeah, of course. Because there's, you know, there's some structures that are just seen as self-evident, like rent and bills mm -hmm. and all of this, you know. Um, and it is, I think for most of us, it it, it is self-evident. It's like we still have to pay our rent and things like that. But um, I don't think that imagining a world beyond that is, I don't think it is as far away as, as it feels to me sometimes like it is, you know, and, and, but part of it is that we have to be willing to have the conversation and it might feel like scary or pie in the sky or whatever, but I think it's, when you speak it into existence, it becomes a little more real. Yeah. And I think that people, it's hard to have language around what, what that really looks like because we haven't even be, been given the vocabulary or the space to name what it is that we are even experiencing and the detanglement of like life and structures from the inherentness of capitalism. Mm -hmm. So I think that like what we're doing is kind of the first step of saying like, how are we detangling like what actually is capitalism and what is like just our lives and uh and like how someone operates yeah i think that that's um i think that that's a nice way of putting it and i think that when when we talk about capitalism and we when we talk about bringing down 
like thinking about the structures and the way that we're thinking about like how are we imagining alternatives um i don't think we're necessarily imagining this kind of like possessionless utopia right like this is something <laughs> we talked about where like <laughs> we're money not still, uh, money still has to exist in some sense yeah we're not advocating against the exchange exchange of goods and services by any means um but what we are i think asking is um what what other things can we bring about that would make the world feel more equitable more joyful mm -hmm. um more um i don't know i mean what do you think about this because this is something we talked about yeah i mean i think that it's sort of this idea of I, there was this bell hooks quote that I saw last night <clears throat> and I'm going to butcher it because I don't, I don't remember the full context, but, but basically the paraphrase is like, you have to have hope in order to make any sort of um, like political system change because the system inherently wants you to feel disillusionment and despair. And I don't know if I could just, I mean, I, I mean, I feel, I feel disillusionment and despair often in our political systems. And I think that, um, you know, I, I don't think that's, I think that's a pretty universal feeling, mm. you know, it's the reason why Congress has such a low like approval rating. Right. And, and mostly all presidents do too, is because there's a, there's just this, uh, overall disillusionment, I think of the structures and the way that they have told us that they are supposed to be supporting us. And it's just very self-evident that they don't. And, you know, that turns certain parties and certain people into certain political ideologies or certain in certain ways. And I think, uh, I guess where I'm coming from about it is like capitalism doesn't allow you to take the time to rest, to be able to organize, to be able to dream, to be able to have these conversations because it relies on grind culture. It relies yeah. on this idea that like, okay, like if I just have the side business, if I just, you know, if I just do X, Y, Z and like the wellness industry has co-opted this as well. I'm not saying all wellness, but a lot of wellness industry stuff has, has taken upon this too, to like efficientize or optimize ourselves in a way that like, we're always busy and it's not you know, it, it, it's busy in the sense that we don't actually have the time to to integrate and rest and like review and rethink like how it is that we could be going about it. So the reason why we have even a hard time talking about this is because we don't feel like we, I mean, I, like we as in the collective, like haven't had time to rest to actually know how we would want to go about it. And like, we don't have time to really look into it and really like come up with this like slow sort of approach to it. And I think that seems sometimes anti-revolutionary because people are like revolution, like mm. fuck the system, it's all gone, like let's go. And I think that something that Trisha Hersey says in her book is just like, this change is gonna be lifelong. And it's going to be, it's going to be like a, it's going to be like a gradual slow build to something, but we can't expect that like you and I are going to be able to come up with like, oh, we have, we, we've rested enough. So we magically know what, like what it means to imagine this world outside of a capitalist structure that we've only ever known. Yeah. I don't think 
I think it's very easy for people who are in the position, and this is something I encounter all the time in academia, right? Because academics, and I think I would include myself in this, and I think it's something that um, it's something that I always have to sort of like work on or 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 think about. Um, that we see ourselves as sort of the vanguard of whatever movement is coming because we have the space to do the most reading, right? We have the space to, mm. um, to like, to, to have these kinds of theoretical conversations, which like, obviously somebody who's working like, you know, two or three jobs is not going to necessarily be able to, um, to, to have the to have those kinds of conversations or have the space to do all that theoretical work. But I think most people are, I would actually, I think almost everyone who has ever worked a job or <laughs> has ever been in um in a position of like having to sell their labor, they're equipped with the tools to have these conversations. You don't need to read you know, Marx or Engels or Hegel or whoever to be able to identify where the structures are fucked up because, because, because we, because we feel in our bodies mm -hmm. that it's fucked up. Right. So mm -hmm. I think for me, you know, something that I'm always thinking about is, um, how do I resist the narrative of like professionalization? How do I resist the, mm. um, how do I resist the urge to want to vanguard things? Because I think then it falls into this um, this kind of hierarchy that reinforces these structures where some people have space for thinking and dreaming, um, even if it's a very small amount of space, right? And some people, that's just closed. That That is they're thinking and dreaming all the time, but the capacity to make that heard in sort of public space is just shut off. And so um, it's really important to me to like, yeah, to not think about myself as like, like you said, like the revolutionary vanguard of resting, right? Like I don't want to, I don't want to fall into that trap because um, I think that everybody has the capacity to understand and talk about this. It's mm. just like, where do we create that space for mm. people to feel to feel heard and and to have those conversations with each other? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, like, to me, it's almost like have if everyone is allowed to have that sort of rest space to do it, capitalism would cr crumble because yes. Because then it's not about it's not about being like, oh, we're changing the system. It was like the system would just be obsolete. Like it would just like there wouldn't be like there wouldn't be it, it wouldn't be able to function because people would be able to actually take time and, you know, like be with, be with themselves. Yeah. And like <laughs> and like not even from like a okay, now I'm with myself. You know, so this is really interesting. I didn't think I was going to mention this, but um, earlier this year, I took FMLA from my job and I had some time off work and, um, and I, I, you know, and I named my mental health as a reason for that. Mm -hmm. And um, it was approved and, you know, I, I took the time. And even during that time when I was like resting, 
oh my gosh, so much internalized capitalism and production mm -hmm. of like, okay, now that I have this space, I have to do something with it. I need to like now come back and prove to who the world, I don't like whoever, that like I have somehow done something productive with my time. And that was like an alluring thing that kept on coming back to me is that even though I've literally asked and dedicated space to like rest, like my internal system is like, nope, like <laughs> your capitalism, like my body is capitalism. And if you're not producing, like, there's, like, shame, there's, like, there's, it, and it's not shame and, like, I feel horrible about myself. It's that, like, I have been, I have been programmed and yeah. conditioned to, like, produce. And I think that, like, something I'm trying to reorient myself to is what does it mean to create something that I want to be creating because I want to create it and it's fun and allow that to just be and exist compared to like, I need to produce something. Yeah. Yeah. Because if the late, because no matter what it's labor, right. Even if you're working for, even if you're doing something for yourself, just because it's fun, right. You're still putting, work into it but it's it's work that doesn't serve anybody but yourself right mm -hmm. it doesn't it doesn't serve capital in any way if you're you know if you're writing or or drawing or or singing or something like that right like if you're not selling it it doesn't exist right and i think oh yeah. my god oh my god like if you're not also like in in social media world like not only if you're not creating it, but if you are not putting it on social media, then it does not exist. And it does not exist. Like, like, and 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 also if you're not marketing it, like if you're not like branding yourself. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, if you're not, if you're not optimizing yourself in some way, right? Then it's like, what the hell's wrong with you? And when you were when you were talking about when you were on leave and feeling shame um and then you were like not shame in the sense of like feeling bad but like it really resonated with me because i think in moments where i have not been producing or like i have um like i haven't been able to work at capacity i often have felt um sort of a, like in a way like sort of like my personhood is diminished like mm. that's something that um that i think i've internalized and i'll tell like you know i'll tell my therapist for example like if i'm talking about oh i didn't get enough done this week and i was like i don't feel like i don't really feel like a person right now so like right. that i don't know i mean but i think that because there's so much there's so much connection between the capacity to work and being yeah, I mean, being recognized as a full human being. And we see it, for example, in the way that the state treats um, disabled people who are unable mm -hmm. to work, right? Mm -hmm. People who people who can't work or are, not, are unable to work. Um, mm -hmm. That like their their personhood is diminished, right? Mm -hmm. That they're they are not they don't have enough to live on, right? That they are they're in this space where it's like you're kind of worthy to be alive, but like you know and and 
it's such it's a thing that's so damaging to self-perception and it's also i think really damaging to um it's damaging to solidarity mm. because if there's this category of like unpersons who are marked by their inability to produce then it's like there's it, it sort of kills empathy yeah i think it, it really also kind of speaks to to what you're speaking of of like tie, tying personhood to ableism mm -hmm. um yeah. in this in this or in, ter in like internalizing capitalism as personhood yeah um yeah uh no sorry I, i'm just i was like yeah hell yeah that oh makes, yeah, yeah yeah exactly sorry um because I, when you were speaking earlier about, you know, telling your therapist of like, oh, if I don't feel at full capacity or if I didn't get enough work done, that I don't feel like a person. And I think it's like so difficult to kind of detangle that from your from who you are, because, um, you know, like that's the only way that our system has structured us to receive um, to receive care and love exactly exactly and it's not even about like parentalness or like family dynamics i mean yes that comes into the family dynamic and like we that like it is about family dynamics but like it's really the whole like like our societal structure is about that right yeah. and it, it's like you know and i think to ask a lot of people to say like what would it mean for you to take away this golden nugget that you have literally been working on your entire life of saying like i have built this career i have built you know this whatever like this family this like whatever all of these like identities of production that um if you take that away there's this sort of like emptiness or gap that is there in the meantime and that's like really like that is what's scary and 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 i'm saying it to myself too because this is the work that i've been trying to do over the past two years of like who am i outside mm -hmm. of my means of labor <clears throat> and my, my means of production or my ability to produce in this x amount of way and um i think to ask a co the collective like the collective in general to like accept or to distance themselves from this idea of worth and production is like a complete it can be perceived as this complete collapse right yeah because then it's like again it's that feeling of personhood it's like if i'm not if i'm not somebody who's made up wholly of these like paradigmatic structures right a worker um a member of a family right a you know somebody who um somebody who's productive in both like a capital sense but also in like a reproductive sense at home mm -hmm. then like what like what am i because if you're somebody who you know things like like friend or or caregiver or something that's not it's not easily monetized, you know? So those sorts of things I think are often sort of put by the wayside. And that feeling of emptiness that you describe, I think is something that resonates with a lot of people because ultimately I don't think worker as like a, as a category of personhood is something that's like ultimately nourishing to the soul or to the, 
you know, to, to your own like inner sense of self, whatever you believe in. Right. And so I think oftentimes you hear people describing this profound emptiness that they have. And it's because, right, the way that we live now, I think it encourages the care, the care muscle to sort of atrophy. And, um, and it's hard to sort of receive that care in, in ways that are healthy because there's so much of, there's so much investment on, um, either like a, a system that extracts from you in exchange for care. And that's something that can be both in capitalism mm. or in the family, which often closely uh, imitates capitalist structures. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really hard because then it's like, you don't have the skills, even if you understand that something's wrong, you don't have the skills to kind of build that up. The skills just aren't there. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's like literally taking the fish out of the water, right? What is it, exactly. like, what, like, what does a fish do when it's out of water? It flops around, right? Yeah. And like, we don't have we don't know where the other water is, so it's like there has to be this sort of flopping around transition period, which you know is like like selling it as like, hey, you're gonna flop around mm -hmm. is not like a great sell for people. Yeah. Uh, and I think that is largely the resistance to the reason why system change doesn't happen is because I think there is just some reality or acknowledgement that like, I don't like, you're going to have to go through the, the, that like the, the fish, the fish flopping on the deck sort of perspective before we can just transition into something new. And I don't think there's, I, I think that that has to happen because if, you just go into the other thing like will like will you be able to operate in that world like mm -hmm. i i'm i'm speculating here i don't know if i'm like yeah. I, i'm still i'm kind of talking as it's coming up i don't know if i've like fully formed this thought but um that's just what's coming to me as you said that yeah i think that period of like fish flopping on the deck kind of like what the fuck like what's going on I do think in some ways that is where we're at or where we're approaching. And I think it's it's a, a period that's very generative, but I think it's also a period that's very dangerous because capital and capitalism, right, understands that people, it's not like, you know, the powers that be, it's not like, you know, Bezos and Elon Musk and whoever, I mean, they know that people are miserable. Right. And, and that's where, you know, you have this emergence of things like fascism, right. Oh, that that emerges concurrently where it's like, we understand that you're miserable. We understand that you're unhappy. We understand that you feel alienated. You know, the answer to this lies in like in white supremacy rather than in building like mutually co-constituted co networks of care. Um, and for people that feel powerless, right, things like fascism, it's really seductive. Mm -hmm. um, and we see this over and over again. So like, and the the question then becomes, right, like how, what can you do, right, to sort of cut that off? You know, what do you, what can you do to make that sort of transitory period where, you know, people are like flopping around on the decks and, and everything is 
you know, ideologically in flux, right? How do you, um, how do you help them see what the structures are? You know, how, how can you, how can people see what the structures are, right? Rather than, um, rather than just go, I think, toward down the avenue of just rage, which ultimately, um, I think ultimately is is destructive, right? Like fascism mm -hmm. is an ideology of just like pure anger. Um, mm. And I think that anger can be really like generative and really productive, but yeah. it doesn't, it it doesn't do any, it's, it, it, it is, it's, it's damaging when, uh, when the, the cogs in the machine seeing things as they really are, um, is really not transparent to people. It's very easy to get them blaming immigrants or women or, or LGBTQ people. Um, well, because at the end of the day, I think everyone feels, yeah. <clears throat> I think everyone feels hurt. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of heartache, I think, around, I mean, you know, everyone's lives and <clears throat> obviously acknowledging the intersectionality here of like, you know, uh, the system harms people in deeper ways than others based on this yeah. based on the inherent structure um but everyone in some ways feels harmed by it and people just i think in a lot of ways want to feel in control and they want to feel that 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 their pain means something mm -hmm. and um they choose to go about it by wanting to not recognize the pain um or by by going the other way and extremely recognizing it and then turning to a you know you know an authoritarian sort of style leader who is going to usher in this like i don't know the, the sort of idea that they can they can have control in some way and yeah. even though it's like an illusion of control and i think the thing that comes to me as we're talking about this is um, Alok Vaidmenin uh, has a lot of poems that talks about how, like, our country and our society in general does not know how to handle collective grief mm. and does not know how to acknowledge and hold space for public displays as well of, yeah. of pain, of, like, public pain. And I think that, like, there's been this bottling up in this country of so much pain and hurt based on what this structure has caused all of us. Yeah. And I don't think that there's really been a public discourse about this. Mm -hmm. There's ne never been a public discourse about what does it really mean for like people to really be present with, you know, intergenerational trauma, with, you know, with slavery, with the slave trade, with the economic systems being built on the inherentness of oppressing other people. And, mm -hmm. and I think that like the United States culture is so scared of acknowledging that because as soon as we start acknowledging it, that's actually when everything starts to unravel because all of a sudden people aren't going to turn to fascism anymore. They're going mm -hmm. to want to turn to communities of care that we just, yeah. you know, that we, that we just kind of alluded to. And um, I think that um, 
this is sort of also the unraveling of what does it look like to imagine a world outside of capitalism is to say what does it mean to create you know like collective and group care and that doesn't just mean like mutual aid like I, we're helping people stay in homes which obviously is very important mm -hmm. but also like what does it mean to reprioritize our value system and comfortability around uh being able to be with people that are in states of grieving or in states of crisis because yeah. we're collectively ignoring it yeah yeah i think you know the the sarah emmed who um is a really wonderful feminist scholar um she has written really extensively about um about sort of the the effective so like the emotional states behind um behind white supremacy and behind mm. sort of emergent fascism and she says like the most powerful strain of these ideologies the things that people are most receptive to when they enter into um when they enter into these kinds of movements right it's not the rhetoric of hatred but it's this rhetoric of it's this rhetoric of care right and it's this really kind of um i mean i think it's a really fucked up way of thinking about care um mm. but it's also something that you know i think is is really attractive about people like jordan peterson right who offers this kind of um like father figure ideology, right? For young men, or even yeah. someone like on a more extreme level, like someone like an Andrew Tate, right? Um, and what is, I think, so, so damaging about definitions of care that come out of the movement, right? Is that um, it's a kind of care that doesn't open up space for things like grief. It's something that doesn't um, open up care in a sense of like mutuality, caring, the importance of caring for one another. Um, and I think it's it's a really like, can be a really attractive and easy kind of care because um, it tells people, right? Nothing fundamentally needs to change about you or the way that you're thinking about things and the way that you're moving through the world. Um, it's the fault of um, these people who are asking you to to think in a different way, right? Are asking you, I don't want to say like do more, right? But are like asking you to think more expansively. And I think that can generate its own kind of, um, that can generate its own kind of like pain, like you said, like this mm -hmm. kind of confusion. I think it ultimately leads to a better space. And, you know, I do think that, like you said, this emerges from um, a really sort of deep cultural discomfort with being able to hold space for, um, yeah, for just acknowledging being in crisis, you know, acknowledging grief and thinking about um, what are the real roots of this, of this unhappiness? Um, which like, is why I, I think ultimately fascism will not win, right? Because it can't hold space for that. And it right. can't, it can't address like what, what people are really hungry for. Um, 
but I think it's also like part of part of dismantling dismantling that dismantling sort of like the fascist authoritarian networks of that capital is a part of, right? Mm -hmm. Um means holding space for ugly feelings too. Um as well as the kind of the kind of utopian optimism that we also talk about, right? Yeah. Uh I really enjoyed listening to you talk about that. <laughs> Sorry, not to monologue. You know? Oh, you're not monologuing. I, I, I I'm very I, passionate about about thinking about this because I do think that it's I think we're at a like we're at like an inflection point in the culture. Um and we need to start talking about this stuff sooner rather than later. So I agree. Um, the first thing that I wanted to say about, uh, what you were saying there is like, you know, I think in a lot of ways, the reason why people so deeply are enrooted into white supremacy is because it fills the gap for them of thinking that, you know, um, this sort of something is that they have this like divine right or like this sort of like nothing's wrong with them sort of mm -hmm. thing and it can be easily that sort of messaging or phrasing can be easily you know like uh misguided in a lot of ways obviously right the kkk and a lot of a lot of white supremacists are you know heavily involved in religious ideologies that mm -hmm. also propagate the sort of understanding that like this is their sort of like right on this earth on this like this is their right in some way and i think what you were speaking of too with some of these other people and you know you know a lot of like fascist or authoritarian leaders try to do is to try to tell them that like you know like um <laughs> the white like white supremacy is like trying to say instead of like you holding space for other people and like instead of you being able to coexist and to offer community of care um you're more interested like white supremacy is about saying like oh your feelings matter your rage matters more mm -hmm. and like your um your sort of like emptiness from being told that you are special and then not feeling special mm -hmm. is what's really and then and then you know authoritarian leaders propagate that up they say you know yeah. you are you are yeah. and then when you've been sold that for your entire life yeah right that you are and then you know someone comes in and offers some very small constructive criticism <laughs> like yeah it's like it's like an identity crisis for them and that's why they have such a large reaction i think to um to that sort of response is because they've been told <clears throat> they probably don't even know it as white supremacy mm -hmm. but they've been told in some ways that they are special up to this certain degree and then basically the world exists and they know that that's not necessarily they know they like in in their heart of hearts even if they don't can't articulate it or talk about it they know that that's not true and to make up for this false narrative that they've had to live under their entire lives mm -hmm. they choose authoritarianism and white supremacy because that propagates the narrative that they have they have had to accept their entire lives 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, ultimately, it's a selfish, um, it's it's a selfish set of ideologies, and I think that, you know, I mean, they'll say it's about community building, community or whatever, but ultimately, at the end of the day, it's like it's about me and my needs, and it's also about preserving. There's nothing wrong with the structure, right? It's just that I haven't had the sort of access to the structure that I feel that I'm entitled to, you know, or that they, that they, and I'm speaking as, as one of these people, right? So it's sort of like, this is something that I encountered a lot um, with research that I did with uh, right-wing extremists in India, where it's mm. a very similar kind of rhetoric where it's sort of like, I feel that I should be entitled to these privileges that like, in the U.S., a white supremacist structure, in India, a sort of um, Brahminical patriarchal structure, um, that I should be entitled to those things, and I didn't get them. And it's not an issue with the structure itself. It's an issue with whatever I feel is holding me back from um, from getting those things. It's about me and my needs, ultimately, right? That's how um, that's how people were framing it, and it was like fuck everything else right but it's an unwillingness to talk about acknowledging people's emotional pain and acknowledging um that there is a sense of emptiness or a, a sense that something's not right which is shared by both left-wing and and sort of right-wing ideologies but ultimately for ultimately for those ideologies the structure doesn't change right the thing that's actually making people miserable is not changed right and that sense of something being wrong or or um the world not functioning as it should is redirected towards the most vulnerable right mm -hmm. people that are in uh in, mm -hmm. in in who are actually feeling the impact of that structure the most um and so it's very very hard for me to see the way that like questions of care and and mutuality are are co-opted by these institutions because ultimately right it all it's doing is serving capital all it's doing is serving the things that are making people miserable in the first place and you know part of my work i think is learning how to have conversations with the people that I work with, you know, the people who I do research with, who are already in the state of like finding like fascism very appealing, how to open up other avenues, not just for them, but for like, you know, people who are not always thinking about this stuff to, 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 to be able to like, or to have space to kind of articulate those feelings of of like weirdness and um, and and learn how to talk about real care and real mutuality and real mm. respect and real alternatives that mm. aren't just ultimately leading to like more violence and more pain and more marginalization. So, I mean, that's incredible. I I think it's incredible. I like <laughs> I fangirled over you to a friend like a week ago, and I was like, Oh my god, that's so sweet. <laughs> I was, I was like, Rachel's doing this research. Like, she told me all about it. Like, when she was in India, and like, she was like, 
you know, like she's like studying fascism and, and the effects of like how to approach and have these conversations because, you know, something that doesn't get talked a lot about in white supremacy and like how white people are supposed to dismantle it is how white people <laughs> need to address white people. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's the real work, right? Yeah. And, um, and I think like, how do we have conversations with the fascists and with the authoritarian or, or with, I mean, you know, I, these are all identities that like, I, I'm not trying to, I, I'm not trying to group people in that way, but just to say like people that have fallen into that guise, like how, how, <laughs> how do we have these conversations when, you know, it can be so, it can feel so clearly that, that there is no, there's no bridge to have. And yeah. that in, in, in many ways that there is nothing to come, there's no way to come back from it. And it's like, I've had to sort of parse out what does it mean to engage and what does it mean to not engage based on the person's capacity or ability to even have that sort of conversation. And also like, how much effort can I give them before I start feeling in some right. way like, uh, yeah. like I'm giving too much of myself to try to like, help this person realize that they shouldn't be fascist. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, because I think it's like, it's such like a twofold thing, I think. The first being like, how, you know, if if you also are like living in the world as like a marginalized person, you know, as a queer person or, or uh, you know, for me as like a Jewish woman, it's like I... I also have to recognize, right, that um, I don't, like, I'm not trying to light myself on fire to, like, no. save, no. you know, like, in some ways, you have to know also in the, in, like, the work that, in, when, when you do this kind of work, and when you're doing, like, organizing work in general, like, where, like, where are my limits, right? Like, where, how do I keep myself whole and safe, right? Mm. And also, like, to what extent can people be reached? You know, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't think having a couple of good conversations is going to deprogram somebody like, you know, like Nick Fuentes, the, the like teenage fascist that was hanging out with Kanye. I don't think that's the job of like the rank and file, but maybe you can have a conversation with, you know, like a, a friend that seems at risk, or maybe you can have a conversation with like a relative or something like that, you know, to the extent that you feel comfortable. And that in itself is, I think, it's building that world of like mutuality. It's building that world of care, you know, because I don't think every, I think most people, like I said, like they have the tools to, to think about these things, right? They have they can name these things and talk about them. But if you are, if, if you have the capacity to like open up space for, for them and, and for you to have this conversation, then like, I think you have done, I, I would tell anyone, like, I think you did good work today. You know, yeah. like I, not to say good work, but I think that you did. Yeah. You've done something that, um, You've done something that I think like moves us along a little bit. It's making me think of this play that I saw a couple of years ago. I gosh, it was so many years ago now. Um, the show was called Straight White Men. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was at um it was at Steppenwolf. I live in Chicago and it's a play. And 
I don't know. I, for some reason, I think it was in Chicago and then it went to New York. I don't remember, but um, the whole plot of the movie or the play was that like two sons had come back from whatever because their mom had passed away. And then the middle son had chosen to stay home to help like their father after mm -hmm. um, um, after the the father's wife's passing. And one one son was this like really famous psychologist and the other one was like a famous author. And they kept berating the other brother because all he was doing was like staying home and like caring for, you know, his his father and everything. And they're like, why don't you keep doing this thing? Like, why don't you keep like, like you, you're so talented. You can do all of these things. Like you went to Harvard, like, like, why are you just like sitting in a, I mean, I don't know what state it was in, but it was like some small town. And like, why are you just doing this? And he was like, have you ever thought to think that this is like what I want to be doing? And like, yeah, I don't really care. Like what, I don't care that you're a famous author or you're a famous psychologist or also that like, I have this fucking potential inside of me. It's like, I, this is what yeah. I want to be doing with my life. I don't really know why that connection came to me based on what you were saying, but it, it some for some reason that came to me. Well, I think because it's like you don't you don't have to move heaven and earth, you know, and like like I said, or like we talked about before, I think it's very easy to like want to reproduce the same paradigms in like trying to make things better um that we have learned from capitalism which is like if you're not if you're not producing in the biggest the biggest way possible if you're not you mm. know like if you're not running the team then you haven't really done anything mm. and i i really think that some of the most effective work that you can do i mean at least like in the space of you know it it, it can be this is going to sound so crunchy. I think that that sometimes love is enough. Like I think that it's enough to say like my life is going to be spent caring for other people the, the best way I know how. And um we always I, I took this I took a seminar and about uh human animal relations and conservation mm -hmm. and we spent all of this time talking about the difference between uh love and care. Because sometimes this was in the context of uh, like like conservation of endangered animals. And it was sort of like there's uh, a way that love can be very one-sided. And um, we do things out of love sometimes that are not, that like the other party is not receptive to. So like engage in the case of, in the case of endangered species, it's about like, engaging in all these sorts of unethical breeding programs and things like that when like maybe the way of displaying care which is like a, a mutual kind of thing um is to is to to sort of discharge your own kind of self-interest mm. um and i think that there's like it, there can be a kind of like martyrdom in that that maybe is like not useful or or um is not like ultimately part of it it's not ultimately that like healthy but um i do think that it's like if all you're doing is thinking about like how can i care for myself and others in a way that 
is um, a way that feels like liberating or a way that is challenging to the structure, then like maybe that's enough, you know? Mm -hmm. Whatever that looks like for you, <clears throat> yeah. you know? I don't think you have to like reinvent the wheel necessarily. It makes me think of bell hooks again. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. love me some bell hooks. Of um, <clears throat> I just got done reading all about love a couple months ago and, you know, like she has an entire chapter on what the definition of love is of, of like not even necessarily hers but like what does it mean to love someone mm -hmm. and i think and i think her quote is like you know love love is like how you take action of care towards others mm. and like and like learning how to be in care with other people yeah um and that doesn't meaning to say like codependency or um you know or like constantly anticipating people's needs but it's to be in constant communication with another person around what it means to be cared for and what it means yeah. to like have that care. And it's really changed my perspective in a lot of ways of like <clears throat> how I wanna go about instigating my relationships with people um, of saying like, of like, of like also the thing that like gave me some freedom too was like this consistent communication phrase of it because I used to think that like, it was like, here's my need, please mm -hmm. respect my need. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the other person's allowed to not want to give that, but like, I always thought it was like a one and done thing. And it's like, mm -hmm. oh, I get to be in consistent communication with someone and we get to, we get to be in dialogue about it. It's not like yeah. a, I'm fighting you or like we're in conflict. It's just like, what does it mean to be in consistent dialogue around it? And that's that's really kind of shaped and framed a lot of how I want to orient myself in relationships. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's um, it's such an also like it's such an anti-capitalist way of thinking about relationships too, because I think that the kind of <laughs> the kind of like I don't know. I mean, I'm just sort of like thinking out loud here, but I think that you know, capitalism loves discrete units of time so mm. it's like you know okay we'll we'll talk you know i ask for my need you ask for your need you know and we and that's it right we'll have this one conversation we'll move on and if it's like if it's not settled in that amount of time or like it's you know the the the, the relationship's done or the relationship can't function when actually like you can have these these conversations and these these ways of like moving through the world with another person that um that challenge that and that don't fit these sorts of discrete units of time mm -hmm. and i also think that it's also like if we think about things like if we're thinking about things like grief or or love right these things kind of uh, challenge capitalist notions of time right especially mm -hmm. grief and i think that's part of where the thing that you talked about earlier which is like this discomfort around grief because grief is not linear right so if you think about like if you think about grieving right it's if you you know if you've experienced it you know that it's not like okay you, you know you take two weeks and then you're over it right you take some time then it's like back to work it ebbs and flows and um and that's really challenging to, to the way that we think about emotion and the way that we think about being in relationships with other people, which is that they should not have that kind of nebulous ebb and flow to them. 
um, that they should sort of function in like discrete units of time. And, and linearness yeah. too, right? Yeah, and linearness. And like this way of like, if something happens that like brings you to a certain experience in your life, like that you're supposed to be able to have moved on from it, like whatever yeah. that is. And it's like, what do you mean? Like, that's a part of my experience. Right, yeah. I think, you know, it's, yeah. And I mean, it also like, it challenges optimization. You know, I feel like I've spent so much time trying to figure out like, okay, how do I get past my grief? You know, how do I like, <laughs> how do I like deal with my trauma and, uh, you know, just get over it so I can just like get back to work and just like yep. do what needs to be done. Yep. And and my one of my therapists said something very like very prescient, which she was like, Rachel, that's not gonna happen. Like you have to you can't go back to like some idealized, optimized version of yourself. And I think and that's, that's yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I think that that is the, a great definition I just want to say of like what internalized capitalism looks like. Because it's it's about like if I don't have trauma, if I don't yeah. have grief, then I can efficientize myself to be more productive in this moment, which means I can have more self-worth or self-value because the man didn't get me down. <laughs> right, exactly. 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 You know, yeah, it's like I I figure I beat human emotion. Like, right. I, yeah. Like, yes. yeah. yeah. Like I like I beat it by by trying to say that I healed it. And, yes. and by doing that, you're also disassociating and objectifying and dehumanizing yourself. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it just makes you, yeah, miserable and sicker. And it's like, if I always think about like when I left to do my field work in India, it was about a month after the shooting at Tree of Life. Um, and that which was about a, Tree of Life Synagogue was about a block from my parents' house in Pittsburgh, where I was staying at the time. And I had had this thought where I was like, well, if I go to India and I just start doing my field work, um, it will heal me, right? Like, because I'll be out of, I'll be out of the context, like, I'll feel so much better. And I spent so much of my time on field work in this sort of, like like catatonic state. Like, I was taking naps in the middle of the day, which is something that I rarely ever do. And when I think back to it now, I always think like, I wish that I had allowed myself to just be with that pain and not immediately try to channel it into work, you know, because now it's like, I feel so, I feel so alienated from that part of my life. And I know that um, it was something so profound. And so you know, I think that it's like that kind of that kind of move where it's like you can work your way out of feeling all of the feeling the full kind of spectrum of human experience. I think that's ultimately part of that sort of nebulousness of capitalism that we can't name mm -hmm. because while it's happening, we don't really understand what's going on. We don't really understand that that this is the impact that of capitalism that we feel like in our bodies. We just know that we're trying to self-soothe. We just know that we're trying to make ourselves feel better. Mm -hmm. But care has been so co-opted by capital yep. that I felt that the most caring thing that I could do for myself was to like submit myself to cap to, to that urge rather than being like, 
I need to be loved. You know, I need to be like, I need mm. to be swept up in something different. Mm. Um, and so when I always think about like, how did I, how have I felt that in my body? That's something that I always, that I always think about was that just immediate urge to be like, let's go to work, Rachel. Like, let's just do it. So, um, yeah, I think it's something that um, is so deeply like part of people's lives of that feeling. Yeah. I mean, thank you so much for <clears throat> opening up about that. Um, yeah. And sharing how, you know, sharing that example of capital, I, I think that mm -hmm. I, not to the same extent, but I think that, you know, I, I think I, I experienced some pretty early childhood experiences of trauma. And even from that early age, mm -hmm. that's what I did. Like, I, I was like, oh, but I do receive and get love if I get straight A's yeah if i um am very popular if i like produce at home if i'm like revered by my family for how hard i work yeah. right and and i think that like capitalism became the only capitalism became care for me yeah yeah and i think that's how lots of people feel you yeah. know where it's sort of like you know, especially in our relationships with our families, which is a, a, one of the places where we learn, right, how to like do capitalism. Mm -hmm. um, if we associate familial love with achievement, mm -hmm. that is, there's no stronger tool of indoctrination, I think, than, like, <laughs> oh, than a parent's conditional love, you know? And so right. I think that's, it's something that, you know, certainly, many like many of my high achieving friends i think feel that same kind of that same kind of thing where it's like if i'm learning how to produce if i'm learning how to work yep. and people the people that are like responsible for my care seem to care about me more then that becomes your paradigm like for your yeah. whole life until yeah. until you realize what's going on you yeah know? yeah and I think earlier on too, like I, I didn't have an avenue to be with that pain mm -hmm. as a child. And the only way that I knew how to um, be with it or to ignore it, right? Kind of in a very similar way of you said, like, I'm just gonna go to India and like, you know, like I'm gonna do my thing. I was like, oh, well, I'm just gonna, sign up for every social club and I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna be this like cheery happy I don't know this like perception of like look at me work hard and like um get good grades and I don't know I guess I'm repeating myself now but it just it, it, it just kind of was this association of I don't I can't be with my pain because the structure isn't there so because of capitalism. And so I am going to keep doing the work so that people will at least recognize me and they will at least see me in some in some way. And yeah. what was painful for me actually was even when I was recognized, it felt worse. Yeah. <laughs> because it wasn't the actual kind of care that I was like, I was actually needing. And yeah. so 
it then it I, but then I like couldn't figure that out when I earlier on because I was like what like <laughs> like why is this not feel good <laughs> yeah yeah that's also so resonant where it's sort of like yeah I mean it's like like I said it's like people you recognize that something's wrong you maybe you can't name it but it's like I don't feel you know like I don't feel better I actually feel worse I thought this thing was going to make me feel better but it's yeah. not sustainable because it's not it's not real care you know it's not real it's conditional and it's conditional on like your willingness to buy into um to buy into the systems and I think that like you know when it goes on in families and things like that it's like you know the your your relatives may not even realize they're doing it because they also are being brought up and you know they were brought up in the same system so then it's like this generational kind of thing um exactly and it's hard you know because then it's like you grow up and again it's like you're repeating those same kinds of patterns i think i i am very lucky that um that people in my life have been like committed to doing this work with me and so mm. um it you know i think it takes time but it's like you know extending the extending my networks has been really useful and also being very intentional about like how i want to do my relationships and how i want to be with people and it's still hard because it's like i've I still have that internalized capitalism inside of me, right? And I still I have that internalized need. Yeah, that internalized thing to just like make, you know, not not name different feelings because it's like it's gonna make things difficult, by which it means mm -hmm. they won't be optimized or run smoothly. And it's it's you know, I mean, I think now, you know, I'm glad that we we have the we've opened up like a space to talk about this because um i think ultimately like one of the things that we have to do when we dismantle capitalism is also think about like how to how to dismantle it in our own minds well being gentle with ourselves but recognizing that it's there yeah and the deconditioning of like what yeah. that really calls for and how that works and then also like again coming back to the kind of like <laughs> fish out of water of like you're literally trying to build a completely new structure inside of your your brain and your body that you've yeah. been conditioned to your entire life. Like your your nervous system has been has been trained to respond to capitalism. And so now just because you know it and just because you're working on it doesn't mean that like it's gonna happen all like right away. Like it's it, like and this comes back to kind of what uh Trisha Hersey says and rest is resistance. It's like this is a lifelong approach. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I do think it, I do think that it requires, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't think it's something that can be solved in a day or with one podcast or something like no. that, but it's like, we're like, we're opening up space for it. You had that really good Sonia Renee Taylor quote, who I love. Yeah. You you yeah. Yeah. I'm let just me, thinking about it now. Let me find it. Um, there is two things that I have been like circling in my head um, that I do want to speak to before we close out the episode, though. 
Um, so the the quote by Sonia Renee Taylor, who um, wrote the book, The Body is Not an Apology, uh, they posted this on Instagram earlier this month. It says, capitalism cannot be in the right relationship with people. It is not possible. But what is possible is the imagination of economic structures and designs that inherently honor the inherent divinity and value in all of us, and then build it from there. I think that that's such a a nice way, I think, of summing up maybe what we're trying to get at, which is that um, we have to, I mean, I think part of what, part of what we have to do is is honor right the 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 things that people are bringing into bringing to the table things that people are bringing into the space and i think like one i think like demanding sort of immediately perfect like people without baggage to do this work it's just it's simply not tenable and i think that's something that i've run into i feel like in in sort of leftist organizing spaces where expecting people to come in like already processed and fully enlightened and i just don't think it's possible well i think that's also a, i think that's also a mechanism of white supremacy of perfectionism yeah. yes because, because it's the I, I i it's the idea that you you do not deserve value or or like that the system doesn't work unless you are completely enlightened yes or which like isn't possible yes yes so, no, of course it's not possible at all. But I think um, it's like, yeah, acknowledging. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, go, go. Oh, okay. Um, that there's something worthy in everyone, just by like dint of us being human and like being in the world, and it doesn't matter to what capacity you're producing, to what capacity you are like a worker, capital W, as a as a person. Um, you know, Taylor uses the term divinity. I don't know if that would say something that would work for everyone, but there is this inherent sort of dignity and worth in right. um, in just like being alive and the structures that we need to create, I think have to be rooted in that recognition of sort of that inherent dignity. Right, and it's saying that the current economic structures do not acknowledge everyone's inherent worthiness is I think is no. really what that statement is saying and yeah. saying like, what does it mean to think of and imagine economic structures that would and yes. then build from there. And I think that as you kind of mentioned a little bit earlier is like, that can just be the base route. Like, what does that look like? And like, of course, we, we all are going to have different ideas about what that really means and how that really comes together. and you know, I, like that work is going to take a while for us to get to some sort of consensus on. Um, but it doesn't mean that we're not going to get there. No, no, I don't think I, I don't think that doesn't mean we won't get there. I agree with you. It's just it's not the work of of a day. Right. Um, right. And I think that and I think it's it's also this like acknowledgement that capitalism doesn't do that. It doesn't acknowledge everyone's right um, inherent value and right and i think that it's like it even shows up in like why is there an hourly minimum wage like i don't mm -hmm. like 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 i know that everyone's fighting over like 20 dollars an hour and or whatever and i'm like yes like that is the fight we're having now but even that structure is like 
Yeah. What's the lowest possible value on somebody's like somebody's personhood? Right. 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 Exactly. Like that, that, that is what capitalism is. It's like, what is the lowest amount that we can pay you into forced labor? That's because, because the structure is set up in the way where we are having to do this work in order to have a house to get paid to to get groceries mm -hmm. to um to have our bodies be looked after by medical staff you know and that to me is what capitalism is it's forced labor in that aspect because people are still going to operate inside labor but if they're not forced into it in order to survive that changes the game of how labor operates in our structures absolutely absolutely i think I've got no notes. I think it, <laughs> that, um, I mean, it's, it sums up so perfectly. I think what, what the stakes are, you know, what's it's, what's at stake for us moving forward. And I think that it is, it is the actualization, the optimization, if you will, of human, of, of human, of human worthiness and human dignity. Mm. And, um, that is, I think, the the jumping off point for all kind of future revolutionary movements. Hell yeah. And it's ultimately why something like fascism won't win, because it's predicated on denying human dignity and human worthiness. And um, nothing like that can ever survive. Nope. So, yeah. Did you want to, I know you said that you had a couple more things you wanted to bring up. Yeah, I mean, I just think we've had such a lovely conversation that I was trying not to like, I was like, okay, like put this in a bookmark to come back to. <laughs> I wanted the flow to, you know, to. Continue. Yeah, yeah. Um, the one was, you know, when I was earlier having the conversation about like, what does it look like for us to have like a conversation on collective grief on, on like, you know, like acknowledgement of pain, acknowledgement of loss, acknowledgement of that sort of national conversation. The thing that always comes up for me is um, something that like other nation states have done before is like South Africa did the Truth and Reconciliation Report after mm -hmm. the apartheid, um, which, you know, really allowed a national dialogue and like prominency to the harm that was caused by the apartheid. And then Canada also uh, did a truth and reconciliation report um, more recently in its treatment towards indigenous and Aboriginal people. And, um, you know, that still isn't to say that, you know, Canada and or South Africa doesn't have racist or imperialist mm -hmm. policies because duh. But um, I think that something like that in the United States seems still unthinkable because I think that there would be so much outrage around it. But like, to me, that is what a next step would be of mm -hmm. like, what does it mean for Congress to commission a group of people to have a national conversation around yeah. slavery and its impact on creating the economic system and how it's intergenerationally harmed, you know, millions of people. Um, and uh, I have it pulled up here just because I want to make sure I'm quoting who it is. Um, you know, Senator Cory Booker and uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee have tried to introduce this as something to to bring into this national stage, but it obviously has never gone anywhere. Um, but to me, that really feels like what a next step is for um, for this national conversation. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I, it just makes me think about the, the 1619 project and um, the kind of uproar around that, because that was, you know, that was people at the New York times trying to, I think, reckon with like the sort of long effect of slavery and, and white supremacy in the U S and just the like, so the the deep like bone deep discomfort that that some people had around that um mm -hmm. and and, and, and that the that, barring of that by by certain uh like government like state governments yeah right? i mean that was part of like the part of like the critical race theory like crt anti crt discrimination yeah. was like the you know banning the teaching of the 1619 project materials right. um and to me, I think that deep discomfort is is just a sign of how how necessary something like that is, or something like a like a truth and reconciliation commission is, because mm -hmm. you can't have like you can't have like a you know. I was just seeing maybe I saw it on Instagram or something of somebody talking about why they teach um, Howard Zinn's book, A People's History of the United States, which takes up like some of this stuff, and she basically says like if you're sick, right, you need to know what's going on in your body. This was a, like a, a high school teacher saying like, the only way that you can make the body well is to understand what is making you sick, right? And so like, you can't have like a fully realized, you can't have like a healthy nation that doesn't, um, doesn't reckon with this or like doesn't mm -hmm. like take it up. And, you know, I, I mean, we can talk all day long about like nationalism and what that means. And that's probably for another podcast, another episode. I would but... love to have an episode on nationalism. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, if you are thinking about like, how do we make, how do we make our nation better? It's like, you do have to, you have to reckon with this. And like, I think that the, the, the really outsized reaction to even the suggestion of doing something like this is just a sign of, um how much we really need it you yeah know? yeah and and yeah. also just how much we're not admitting that there is a problem yes but, i yes. mean and, and that is and that is what i feel collectively from the united states is like even though we are sort of in this like i don't know everyone knows that there's a problem mm -hmm. everyone everyone knows like there's no there's yeah. no real denying that everyone knows there's a problem yeah like we are doing mental gymnastics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to, like, it's like that. Yeah. It's a particular that. flavor of <laughs> that, like particular flavor of like theocratic nationalism in the United States, which is uh, that like, we're just ordained by God to be like above it all. So anything right. that we've done is like anything bad that we've done is ultimately not worth talking about because like it's the technology. Yeah. Yeah. Like ultimately, right. We're still the greatest country on earth. So like, that's really um, an unsustainable kind of like way of looking at a society. Um, and it just reinforces, yeah, I mean, it just reinforces all of this, like this sort of atrophying of care, I think. Yeah. Of course. The second thing I was just going to mention too is, um, you know, talking about like structural capitalism and how it harms certain marginalized or disadvantaged communities is like, you know, even for the Democrats, people talk about FDR as if they're, they're this like, you know, I don't know, this like savior to the, the, I don't know, the people movement, if you will. Um, yeah. 
but like even in the passage of the new deal excluded like black people right right and so yes. like cool so we're like that is white supremacy that is structural capitalism and white supremacy we are creating a government entity that is supposed to help everyone and we are still excluding people of color black people from this and the reason why a lot of democrats um in the south were so pro-democrat at the time is because that gave them leverage to think that they were better yeah yeah right and yeah. and i think that that still needs to be acknowledged is like that is what structural policy does to white supremacy and how it propagates again this idea that white people will support a certain party as long as they're being told that they're better and yes. this is the policy of financial financial policy of like helping people and only them getting received the help because they apparently deserve it more. And yeah. I think that's a really good example. Yeah. I think the United States has always had a party of white grievance politics, um, which again is, you know, getting into what that means is probably another episode. But like, I think that that, that particular strain has always existed and you know now it's the republican party but it, it it um it's always there right that's always like a form of like rage or anger that's always had like political it's always had like a political home somewhere and um i think it's worth talking about the way that that kind of political recognition has also propped up the structures of capital that serve white grievance politics mm -hmm. and the way that like the current kind of populist strain in white grievance politics has come about again because of this feeling of like people feeling that they're entitled white people feeling like they're entitled to something that like they haven't received and and it's not it's it's still preserving like this the structures of capital um I would really recommend that people read. Um, there's a, was an article in the New Yorker by Eleni Shermer. Um, and if anyone is listening to this and uh, doesn't have access, I'll send you a PDF um, about. Um, I read it with my students just this past quarter about student debt and its origins in sort of the New Deal system mm -hmm. um, and the way that the New Deal really effectively moved to what Shermer calls. Um, a credit-based welfare system in the United States. So um, the way that much of sort of our social network, our sort of social safety net became predicated on putting people in debt. So you're not getting money to go to college because we feel that everyone should go to college, right? We're, you're getting it because it's, there's an incentive for the bank to give you the student loan or something like that. And then a lot of our social safety net has moved towards um, that kind of like debt-based system or even something like um welfare to work programs which were really big like under clinton in the 1990s um that that you know ebt or something like that was predicated on how much you were working um it really has totally sublimated 
the 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 things designed to help the most vulnerable towards like making them better workers and it has an outsized impact on people of color particularly black women who owe the most collective student debt of any demographic in the country um so all of these sorts of things that are incentives for all these sorts of art the american social safety net is basically totally tied up with capitalism and because capitalism is an inherently white supremacist institution mm -hmm. um predicated on slavery and um, mm -hmm. you know our whole financial system being built on the backs of the slave trade um it is uh it's reinforcing not just structures of like economic inequality but also racial and and gender inequality so you know i don't think that we can the safety the 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 kind of social welfare state in this country is not going to change without like serious changes to economic structures um and i think that again like i know we'll talk later on about sort of the the modern democratic party and and the kinds of proposals that they have but um these things go hand in hand with each other and um we've got to we've got to be willing to open ourselves up to an alternatives or nothing is ever going to change mhm mm absolutely i think that was that was <laughs> <laughs> more wonderful, Rachel. Um, um, do you have? I'm. We'll wrap things up. Have you got? You got anything else to add? The only other thing I was going to add. Well, one I was just going to say is thank you for bringing introducing that because yeah. I am not as educated in that space, and I would like yeah. love to hear your like understanding of it. So maybe we can have an entire episode about it. Um, but the only other thing I was going to add about the whole sort of like New Deal sort of perspective is like, you know, when LBJ became president and then signed the Civil Rights Act, like he's notorious for saying basically like we've just handed Republicans the South. Mm -hmm. And that is sort of this like reactionary thing to saying like, because we are acknowledging that black people have a right to exist and have a right to, you know, exist in this country and like yeah. should have the same rights, like, like white supremacists are going to now change parties because they're angry and and yeah. they're and like I still think that that decision to sign that because and a lot of what the civil rights act was was trying to do was to to get that equilibrium of economic systems right because that's a lot of what MLK actually talked about was like being able to have the same right of economic access as white people and I think that that sort of reaction um from white supremacists specifically in the south but like you know not just saying the south it was also people in the north too like i'm not trying to like anyway um is just that like that that's still being played out today yes yes it is and it's not new i mean the the the, the whole trumpist strain is not new um the 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 path for the path for the emergence was, of Donald Trump was laid, you know, 150 years ago, even earlier. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's no way there's no way of of bringing talk, like talking about these issues without also contending with history, which is why I think something like a Truth and Reconciliation Commission would be so important. Yeah, and it would also unravel everything. <laughs> yes, yeah, it would totally 
fuck everything up. Right. I'm all for. So. Right. Right. I mean, like you've heard it here, burn it down already. So yeah, burn it down already. That's why we call it that. Um, yeah. Well, that's, that's, that was the only thing I was I was going to add. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being here, Blake. Um, it's always a joy to talk to you about uh, about all this stuff. Um, for those of you listening, we would love to hear your feedback. Um, you can email us at burnitdownpod at gmail.com. Uh, we also have an Instagram. Um, I believe that the, the URL for that is also uh, at, burn it, at burnitpod. Um, and uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at burnitdownpod. Um, and with that, um, thanks for listening. Uh, please follow us if you haven't already. And uh, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.